Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we delve into and explain the stories, the history and the terminology of the beautiful game. On April 18th, 2021, a story broke that looked as if it might bring some of the biggest changes we've ever seen in the modern game. 12 of Europe's biggest teams announced they wanted to establish a new midweek competition, the European Super League. The contest would seek to rival the Champions League and the Europa League with guaranteed entries for the big boys and a shed load of extra cash. It would have completely changed the game with repercussions that have resounded all through levels of the sport. However, a matter of days later, the whole idea collapsed. So what was the European Super League? Why did it fail? And why may it still represent a threat to the game in the future? My name's Ryan Bailey, and helping me to answer those questions, we have Mr. Taylor Rockwell. Hello, buddy. How you doing? Very good. So all the better for having you here. And also oh. Mr. Graham Ruthven. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Hello, Graham. Graham, um, this was a big, big story. I think I heard you yeah. once describe it as the biggest of our careers in this game. Where were you when it happened? And what kind of disgusting food were you eating? <laughs> I mean, I don't have anything interesting to say of where, where was I. I was in my living room all day watching the TV and <laughs> uh, monitoring Twitter and writing stuff about it. And let's face it, I, I was probably eating a, a pie of some sort that of day. Um, yeah, naturally. Um, it was a day ending and why. But um, yeah, absolutely. For me, it was it was definitely the, the biggest story of my, biggest soccer story of my adult life. I can't really remember anything that could have completely reshaped football um as as i know it maybe in the early 90s that the premier league maybe the champions league the rebranding to the champions league maybe that was as significant but i would have been either zero or one at that time so mm-hmm. in terms of something that i can remember and to relate to yes it was absolute a, a, a colossal story that really could have changed everything Taylor, we're recording, at the time of recording, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of this very, very controversial announcement when this was all sprung upon us by apparently a leak, it seemed, when this leaked on a Sunday night, I seem to remember. Um, Could you sort of give us a little introduction into what happened on that Sunday and what the plan was for this European Super League? Yeah, so I think it was like, uh, it had leaked before, but it kind of gets... To my mind, it gets more widespread attention when Gary Neville talks about it on the Sunday night uh, broadcast he was doing at the time. I think he he has some pretty scathing remarks during that broadcast. Then he and Jamie Carragher do like a more detailed breakdown and get, share their thoughts on Monday night uh, about the plan. Uh, and it's basically the the announcement is that, what, 12 of the biggest clubs in Europe are breaking away to form their own Super League that will basically rival the Champions League, even though they say it won't. It obviously would have, and it would have eventually been 20 teams split into two groups of 10. 15 of those teams would have been permanent. No way to get kicked out, so there's five spots up for grabs. How generous of them to leave (laughs) five spots open and uh, protect uh, their interests. And it basically would have been the major clubs of Europe, specifically of England, Spain, and Italy. And Graham, this one didn't just spring up overnight. This whole plan was a little while in the making, wasn't it? Yeah, so a quick uh, history lesson on the concept of a, of a European Super League. So talk of a, a pan-continental league had been around for, for uh, pretty much as long as European competition itself had, had been around. In fact, 
proposals for a European Super League, it was called something different then, but it can be traced back to 1968 when UEFA put it on the table only for a secondary competition, the UEFA Cup, which became the, the Europa League. That was created instead, and so that was how they they expanded European competition rather than creating a a pan-continental league, single division. In the decades since then, it came and went as an idea until around 2018, when the biggest clubs in Europe started to talk to each other about the concept. Florentino Perez, who's the the Real Madrid uh, president, he was a leader in those talks, and for much of this process, it appeared that these clubs were simply using the prospect of a European Super League as a threat to strong-arm UEFA into reshaping the Champions League in the way that they wanted. And right up until the Super League proposal was made official, people thought this was still the case, particularly because the weekend that the news broke was the the, the day before the meeting of the, the UEFA Executive Committee. And at that time, all these clubs were putting a lot of pressure on UEFA with regards to the the format of the Champions League through an organisation called the European Club Association, which is kind of an affiliate organisation with UEFA and a a lot of clubs sit on that board. And that is how a lot of them communicate what they want to UEFA through that board. And Lodes wrote it off as a ploy that the Super League, I remember even after it was reported by a number of the newspapers after the, the news was leaked on that Sunday, there was a lot of discussion of is this still a ploy? This isn't actually going to happen. But obviously, as we know now, it ended up being a lot more than that and there was an official announcement of a new competition that night. There was indeed. And this this would have had a lot of knock-on effects, Taylor. Um, not long afterwards, it was announced that these teams would be kicked out of the Champions League, these teams would be kicked out of UEFA competitions. There was a lot of uh, to and fro between the powers that be in UEFA and FIFA and this new breakaway. Yeah, I mean, which is to be expected when a bunch of your main members and people that are in the board are saying, yeah, we're going to go do our own thing. I think the response was pretty swift, pretty negative, and pretty consistently negative at that from fans, from government officials, from even like from some managing people, some some coaches even, I think, coming out uh, against it. And I don't think that was a thing that was really anticipated. It feels to me, I agree with Graham, it felt to me like they were sort of using this as leverage. And I still kind of wonder if that was what they were ultimately trying to do. But when they start rolling out branding and plans and it feels like maybe there is more to it, but it also feels like so many of the ideas that they were rolling out and and promoting were half-baked and not yeah. like the level of preparation that you would have expected for a league of this stature, yeah. for an announcement of this kind. It felt to me like you would have wanted to have all of your ducks in a row, everything planned and know exactly how you're going to move forward so you can just get it done. And to some extent, it felt like, well, the cat's out of the bag, it's been announced, so we're just going to roll with it and we're going to have to deal with it as we can. But I think because you didn't have that sort of unified front with one person speaking on behalf of the organization, uh, and if anything, clubs instead opted not to talk about it. They didn't speak about it publicly, and that meant individual managers and players did. And since those managers and players were against the Super League, uh, Jordan Henderson, Jurgen Klopp specifically come to mind, uh, Pep Guardiola later on, uh, I I think it meant that the people who were talking about this Uh, that were like the known faces who were talking about it most publicly were talking about it negatively and the clubs that were involved weren't talking about it at all. 
Yeah, Graham, we, we can get into the reasons it failed a little later on, but it did seem, as Taylor says there, that it was a little half-baked. It felt like they were building a cruise ship and they were pushing out into the water without half the hole being there at that point. Yeah. And even down to little things like the logo, which looked yeah. a bit like, you know, a 16-year-old's homework. Yeah, well, I mean, pretty advanced 16-year-old that can use uh, basic level Photoshop. But I get, I get, I get what you're saying. It was very, it was quite amateurish. The the site in particular, which had very, very little information on it, the logo was very simplistic. I think this is the the most surprising thing to me was here you had an idea that had been talked about for decades and had been seriously talked about for a number of years. You had twelve of the biggest, richest, and most powerful clubs in Europe all the resources that they have at their disposal, and yet the sales pitch was was so weak, as as Taylor references there. Um, the At no point was the... If I had to boil down what the issue was, at no point was the case for the creation of the Super League actually made. It was just kind of a, 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 a fact. They put it across as a fact that this was going to happen, you're just going to have to deal with it. There was you're no welcome. sales pitch to yeah. fans, to leagues, to associations, to... Uh, governments which got involved in, in this and um, it wasn't until Florentino Perez appeared on uh, El Chiringuito on the Monday night that anyone was actually involved with who was involved with the Super League actually put up a public front and for anyone who mm. doesn't know what El Chiringuito is it's a comedy football show in Spain it is not taken seriously it's not news night or 60 minutes um, but Perez was the only person attached to it that even risked putting himself forward. Andrea Agnelli, who was another name on the on the proposal, on the announcement, I should say, he is the Juventus uh, chief executive. He went he went into hiding. It was actually a story in Italy at the time. Whereas Andrea Andrea Agnelli, he was very close to the UEFA president Alexander Seferin, which was a, an interesting subplot there. He's actually, I think, Agnelli is the uh, godfather to Seferin's uh, child, and that relationship after, on the, on the back of the Super League has completely broken down. And of course, there was no comment from Manchester United, despite the fact that Joe Glazer was his name was also in the announcement, because that is that is typically what Manchester United do. They don't comment. And the first rule of product launch and PR is always put forward the case for why you should exist as a mission statement. And there was nothing like that. And so it meant it was an open season from all angles on something that people were left to interpret in any way they liked. And the way they tended to interpret it was in a negative way. Yeah. T- Taylor, that was uh, one of the most puzzling things, wasn't it? That, If you cast your mind back to that Sunday evening of April 18th last year, it was joint press releases that all looked identical going up on websites. Some pretty crazy subterfuge going on here. And as Graham says, no one really talking about it. No one really willing to put their head above the parapet and say, yeah, we're, we're going to do this thing. We're all going to pay each other $250 million each just to enter and uh, we'll all be great and you'll watch it and it'll be great. By the way, it's happening pretty soon. And I think that is probably a major reason why there was such immediate outcry against the Super League is that never has it felt more like these guys or never has it just been more transparently obvious that these owners, these people in charge see these clubs as their as their property, as their playthings, as theirs to do with as they please. Jamie Carragher made a very impassioned argument against Liverpool joining and specifically against FSG by saying what well, we've won one title and one Champions League since they took over. They've won 19 before FSG was involved, and they're using that history to be able to argue that they have the status 
to be included in the Super League and they're taking the history of this club and sort of co-opting it, making it their own as though they own that history when it belongs to the players and, and the supporters just as much. Uh, maybe not on a financial banking document, but I think you, you get what I mean. Mm. And so it just became very clear that it was people in charge deciding these, th- these are our things to do with as we please. We own them. We'll put them in our own league. It doesn't really matter what you say. You're welcome. You get to watch the best teams in the in Europe play against each other. And there was just such an air of arrogance about it. And there was such a lack of consensus building or any sort of forethought for how is this going to be perceived? How do we make people excited about this? How do we get people on board? It ultimately, my own opinion, is that it felt like they just think people are stupid and that people will just be like, oh, a shiny team playing a shiny team. I can't wait to watch that. And Mm. not really understanding the history and how important these teams are and how important these local rivalries and local competitions are. Do Man United fans not want to play Leeds? And they would have still. They would have been in the Premier League. But the idea would have been that if you're focused on the European Super League where you're playing 18 games at a minimum, uh, you're not really going to f- your, field your full-strength team, especially when, you're, when your spot in the Super League is guaranteed, so there's no finishing fourth and qualifying to worry about. Why even care about your domestic league? And it was just so not thought out, so not considerate of the people who attend those games, who fill the stands, who create that the atmosphere and pay for a lot of things that I think it was doomed from the start. Yeah. And and they didn't just misread the room in a sporting sense. They misread it in a in a wider societal sense at that yeah. time. So cast your mind back to 2021 at that time, April 2021, there weren't fans inside Premier League stadiums. At that time, obviously, we are, I mean, we're still in the pandemic right now, but at, at that time, we were in a, 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 a more critical point of the pandemic. And so it felt like these these greedy owners were using the pandemic where they didn't have fans inside stadiums to protest them and have the backlash right in front of them. They were using that as an opportunity to to, to push through a move that would make them even richer. And at that time in the UK, where in the UK where the Super League is where a lot of the protests were, there there wasn't really the same visible backlash in Spain and uh, in Italy. There certainly was in England. And at that time, you had a scandal of the UK government being caught giving uh, public contracts to basically their their mates and the rich getting richer. And, and really, the, the Super League idea tapped into that. And, and fans weren't just protesting the 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 concept of a super league they were they it was a protest against club owners in general it was Cronkies out fsg out glazers out and at yeah. that point fans decided they'd had enough of greedy owners sucking their clubs dry and taking fans for a ride and it was a lot of different elements that all fed into the the backlash which was was pretty fierce and yeah. i think that's why it just feels so half-baked even to this day because uh, I am not a very big Boris Johnson fan. I would say I'm not a fan at no. all. But uh, to not try to get him on side feels like a massive mistake because, as Graham said, there's a political scandal at the time. What better way to distract people from that than to be the champion of the people against this European Super League and these billionaires who are wanting to do whatever they want to do with these things that we care about? It's a way to build support, and I feel like if they had reached out and tried to get some leading government officials 
on the same page or involved in the organization, they have a bit more cover. If they, I doubt Prince William would have been on board, but he's another one who comes out and speaks publicly against it. And and I think there's those cracks there that also make it really, really difficult for this thing to ever truly get off the ground because it just seems like everybody but the rich people who stand to benefit financially from it is opposed to it. Indeed. Well, at least those UK government, um, you know, crises are out of the way. They're in the rearview mirror. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we don't need to worry about those. <laughs> we're going to take a very quick pause. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the public reaction, about the fallout of this, about the domino effect of teams dropping out uh, and maybe a little look to the future and whether this whole thing can rear its ugly head once again. Back shortly. Today's episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Longtime sponsors ExpressVPN would like to let you know that using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock. Did not realize you were supposed to lock your check-ins. Now I'm slightly paranoid because if you think your stuff is kept private, you never know who's going through it. And that applies to your internet activity as well. When you go online without a VPN, internet service providers, ISPs, can see every single website you visit. I won't even pause to let that sink in because that could be too terrifying. They can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. But when you use ExpressVPN, you can browse anonymously because ISPs cannot see your online activity. You become anonymous via a secure VPN server. Your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. Secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash soccer today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash soccer. And you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for making me paranoid about airline travel, securing the internet and sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking about the European Super League um, and perhaps the public reaction. We talked about this uh, in the first half of the show, Graham, and the, the massive miscalculation that these club presidents and club owners made. And it was led, a lot of the protests, a lot of the backlash, as we said, was kind of led by the English clubs. And a point I'd like to make is one which Taylor sort of inferred in the first part of the show as well, that clubs, particularly in England, are owned by their communities. So that's how they're perceived. You know, Roman Abramovich or whoever's the owner of a big club or an ESL club, they write the checks. They don't own the club. It's owned by the people who go everywhere. That's kind of the perception. That's sort of a different perception that you get to American sports as well. So the tolerance for mm-hmm. moving a franchise around the country, Graham, which you see, unfortunately, you see it in the States. Uh, the one time it's happened in the UK, it was pretty bad and it will never happen again. So there was a big, big public outcry here. There was a, an, an outcry even from people within the organizations who were involved in this, yeah. as we mentioned, Pep Guardiola and the like. Absolutely. The the public reaction was, was fierce. And you had protests outside stadiums, you had uh, protests outside Ellen Road, that was maybe the, the first big one, that might have been the Sunday that the news kind of broke and, and Liverpool were playing Leeds at Ellen Road and fans of both clubs, that was also the thing that was most striking was 
you had fans of uh, all clubs involved in the Premier League protesting together. So Leeds and, and Liverpool, there's a bit of a rivalry there between those two clubs. They're, they're, they're fans, Liverpool fans travel up to Leeds to protest alongside Leeds United fans who are making exactly the same point. You had Leeds United leaving out t-shirts for Liverpool with uh, Champions League logos on it that said earn it and, and the, the Leeds United players warmed up in those t-shirts. You had protests outside the Emirates Stadium in, in North London. You had the protests outside Stamford Bridge. Old Trafford, where fans forced their way into the, the stadium, made made it onto the pitch before a game against Liverpool, and that caused the the postponement of that match. And um, not to go over all, all old grounds, but the protest became a, a some something. It became about something more than the, the the Super League. It became about the owners and just generally the state of football as a whole. And uh, certain discussion points were brought up about should we bring in an independent regulator for football, something that actually is still on the table, that's still getting dis- uh, discussed by the, the UK government. I feel like that may actually happen in, in some form, whether that regulator will actually have any power or not is, is another matter. But it, it it exploded. It just became this this giant thing. It was a dominant story in not just in sports news, but in news in general. It was the dominant story in the country and that uh, kind of feeds into what I was saying to Taylor earlier about it. It, it was something larger than sport. It transcended soccer mm-hmm. at that time. Well, it was a very, very shocking story, Graham. And as you say, it was uh, all-encompassing. But something even more shocking, Taylor, happened within two days of this announcement coming out. It started to show cracks. The domino effect started. Clubs started to pull out. If I'm remembering correctly, Taylor, was it Man City who were the first ones to decide they no longer were going to be a part of it? Chelsea, I think. Was it Chelsea? It's confusing. I think Chelsea had drawn up the documents to officially withdraw from it, but I think Man City announced that they were going to leave it first. So it seems to be, depending on who you talk to, it was either Chelsea or Man City. But I think... The key thing, at least with Chelsea, seems to have been that they went along with it out of a fear of missing out. And I think that was the case for a few different clubs. It was a feeling of, we're being invited right now as one of the biggest clubs in Europe. First of all, that's great. We want that status. But second of all, if we don't join now and other people do, then we miss our opportunity. And what if we're just kind of left to rue what might have been? And so I think there was a, I guess we'll go along if everybody else is. Then you have this reaction, and Chelsea's, I think, bus is blocked from entering. Petr Cech has to come out and talk to the fans, and I think at that point they had already decided they were going to withdraw. But that that strong reaction has those teams that I think only were involved or mostly involved out of a sense of we don't want to miss out think, yeah, this isn't enough motivation anymore, and so they start to pull out, and once a couple do, I think the rest of the English clubs follow suit, recognizing how poorly this has gone over. And and I will say, I, I am not uh, English, so I, I don't feel like I have bias when I throw this out there. I think it's the response of England that really does scupper this, or it goes a long way towards sinking the Super League. Because if the English media had been sort of tepid about it, if fans had protested but then still gone to the games in the capacity that they could or just sort of gone back to their homes and not really shown that much reaction, I, I think they push forward. But because there was just such a negative response to it, such a strongly negative response at that, you have these teams 
waver and then buckle. And once you do, you lose the big six, uh, such as they're called, and you lose half of the teams that are involved in the Super League when they announce. And then, uh, what, I think Serie A follows suit, and so too does Bayern, so too do Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juve later on, although I'm not sure they ever actually end up leaving. I think by the end of it, Barca and Madrid are the only two left in the Super League. So maybe they'll just end up playing against each other what? on repeat. With regards to the, the dominoes falling, I, I found the the response of the other Premier League clubs, not the six that were involved, I found that very interesting. So Agreed. on the Monday, on the 19th of April, there's an emergency meeting of the Premier League. And this was the first time in the league's history that teams had been excluded from that meeting. So the six English, English clubs involved in the Super League weren't invited. And Angus Kinnear, who is the, the CEO of League United, he speaks about what the strategy was for the, the Premier League clubs, the other Premier League clubs, because they knew, as much as they were talking tough about bans, they knew they couldn't ban the six clubs because of the impact it would have in the Premier League. The Premier League wouldn't be this worldwide global product that it is now without those six clubs. So the strategy that they decided on was to get one of the six to pull out. And they knew that if they could get one, the rest would likely follow. And the club that they targeted was Chelsea primarily, because not just because they thought that, as you say, Taylor, they had kind of just gone along with it, but because they recognised that Chelsea were in a, a different situation. City as well, we should mention, they're in a different situation to other clubs of having a state owner or an oligarch owner. And so they didn't they didn't really need the money. Chelsea and Manchester City weren't really in the Super League for having for, for the money that it might bring because money is already no object to them, or, or, or I should say it was <laughs> no object for, for Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, indeed, that was, that was a successful ploy because those two clubs pulled out of the Premier League ones they pulled out first and then the rest came crumbling down. Yeah, a, a good tactic there to, to target those teams. And I think, am I right in thinking PSG weren't even involved all along? It was basically yeah. them being, yeah, we don't we don't need to be involved in this nonsense. Maybe a rare uh, a positive yeah, exactly. foresight from PSG on their part from this one. Um, but as you say, th- those teams who didn't really need to be in it financially um, uh, were the first to fall. And it did leave. I think it was Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus who were sort of the last ones circling the drain, who I think may even still be on that yeah they are they basically are particularly Barcelona and Juventus and the reasons being Graham that Barcelona and Juventus both really really needed this financially absolutely and and this is where there is a another element to this this whole discussion is that for the Premier League clubs absolutely it it was about greed certainly for the ones driving it so Liverpool and Manchester United in particular Arsenal in there as well it was about greed it was about creating more wealth for themselves they already have a golden goose in the Premier League I'm a little bit surprised that they risked that in in the first place because that gives them such an advantage over the rest of Europe but anyway it was about making more money for Real Madrid and Juventus and Barcelona they needed something like the Super League to, to catch the Premier League, who, as I say, have such a financial advantage. And you could make the argument that they have overspent and they've spent within uh, outside their means and that is their own problem. But these clubs have real financial issues and to get themselves on an, e- of an, on an even keel with the Premier League clubs was, was very appealing to them. Um, so it's maybe not surprising that those three clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, are still clinging to this idea. I'm not sure whether a three-team tournament is going to be that watchable, but they (laughs) still seem to have some hope that it might happen in some form uh, further down the line. 
Yeah, they haven't given up. In fact, in October 2021, it was announced that the European Super League company, led by Real, uh, Barcelona and Juventus, was planning an open league with two divisions of 20 clubs each intended to compete with the Champions League and the Europa League. So they're still trying to do something like this, Taylor. And they're still trying to have a competing product. They're still trying to basically get a bigger piece of the European continental pie, which is what this is all about, really. Um, And so, unfortunately, Taylor, the threat, of the European Super League hasn't really gone away. And we are seeing the Champions League kind of incorporating some of its values, unfortunately, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the Champions League is inclined to evolve and change its format, as Graham talked about. We've seen it happen before, and we've seen it happen before when there was pressure to sort of change things up, have more of a a pan-continental league. So I, I don't have as much of an issue with that. I don't have really that big of an issue with the Champions League awarding more places to bigger bigger clubs. I don't think it's ideal. I think if you have the Champions League, ideally it would be the champions of every single country, and that's it. But we're not going to get that. And I think that that is not great, but it's not the worst thing because it's still ultimately a thing that you are qualifying for that you can theoretically get into if you are the best team or one of the best teams in your country. And that, I think, was the biggest thing about the Super League is the feeling of, look, we know there are teams that have more money and we know there are teams that are going to use that money to buy players and just increase the golf and talent. And that's just how it's going to be. That's the nature of modern soccer. But there's still, I think, the illusion of fairness. And we have, as we're recording this, we've just done an episode about Villarreal making the semifinals of the Champions League. And that is a big deal with how many huge clubs have been knocked out and haven't made it that far. And that is the beauty of the Champions League. And when you sort of shatter that illusion and instead say in concrete terms, nope, we're the biggest clubs in Europe. We can do what we want. Everybody wants to emulate us and we're going to create our own thing that's independent of you all because we're better than you, ultimately is what you're saying, it, it, it shows a, a lack of humility that is somewhat staggering, I think, but it also, I think, is such a different competition that removing that from the equation, if we change the Champions League a little bit or we make it more favorable for the bigger clubs, I think that's the way football's going, and I don't love it, but I ha- certainly have a way less of an issue with that than I did with the Super League. Do you feel the same way, Graham? I'm not convinced I do. Um, I'm not a massive fan of the, of the the changes to the to the to the new Champions League format. I, I think with with the Super League discussion, sorry to take it in a slightly different direction, but I think one of the the scary things about the Super League discussion is I I strongly believe that had they gone about it in a smarter way, they they could have got this through. This this could have happened, and I I almost think they they thought too small. To be honest, I know that seems like a ridiculous thing to say, but had they proposed a whole league structure where these clubs are leaving their domestic leagues entirely and maybe there's two divisions of 20 clubs and then you take 40 of the most powerful clubs from all around Europe, including, you know, your Ajaxes, your Celtic Rangers, your clubs from Portugal and so on. What, how, how much power do those leagues and associations have once you take that many clubs for yourself? And that's where I think the Super League, had it been even bigger in scope, they might have succeeded in completely reshaping football had they been a little bit more proactive with the sales pitch and in terms of um, getting public faces on TV shows to make, to make that sales pitch and talking to players and coaches before the announcement so they weren't caught cold and instantly get, have their backs put up. 
I think it could have succeeded, and and at some point in the future it could still succeed. But it feels like it's it's probably not going to be back on the table for. I, I don't think it'll be back on the table for another ten years, but mm. it'll probably be probably be back at some point in the future. Yeah, I agree. T- time is a great healer with this kind of thing. Um, I, I, I tend to agree that if they'd have gone a bit bigger, it might have had a better chance, Graham. But it does feel like, yeah, they if they tried to do this again, say next season, uh, the public mood would not be <laughs> very welcoming of it, right? No, no, not at all. They've definitely missed their shot for the next few years, I would say. They have indeed. So, Taylor, that was the European Super League. That was a fun adventure last year, wasn't it? It really, really wasn't, but then was when it ended up being the case. It was interesting researching this to go back and see coverage about it before it had it gone under. And just the 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 doom that pervades all of the conversations about it and the anger and frustration. And it's really nice to then hear the ones about why it failed and that talk a little bit more about that and to hear the kind of difference between those two. It felt like a unifying moment. I saw the joke again, recording on the week of the Champions League, a joke about how like City fans were annoyed with Atletico Madrid for their antics in the game, that United were still frustrated for what happened, and that Liverpool were frustrated for past offenses, that like Atleti had found a way to unify City, United, and Liverpool fans uh, together. And the European Super League went one step further and united fans of many, many different clubs, including direct rivals, against an organization. So in that way, it was cool that it united the, the world against a thing credit yeah. to the billionaires for letting that happen but also still shame on the billionaires for trying to make it happen in the first place that that's ultimately taylor my biggest takeaway here we feel in this modern society that the authorities and maybe corporations have a vice-like grip on us but this showed that people power can work didn't it it really did and it's and it seems like cliche or it almost feels like if I didn't know anything about this to hear that conclusion, I'd be like, yeah, right, sure. I'm sure that that's what happened. But it really is that if people are quieter, if people just accept it, if it is what it is and it's the way it's going, I, I think it, 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 it still exists and they find a way to make it happen and they push through. And I think though they said it wasn't going to happen until the 2023-24 season, I think they probably would have tried to get it going immediately because once the thing is up and running, it exists and it's harder to shut down. And I think mm. that the immediate response was so strong and made that such an unlikely possibility that ultimately it doesn't end up happening. So well done, everybody who took to the streets. Yes. Uh, good protesting and no cake was eaten. So that's good. <laughs> well done, everybody, except you, Andrea and Yelly. Yeah. I think that just about <laughs> sums it up for this soccer and one one Let's and not let's not let Wood, Ed Woodward off the hook. He can be thrown in there too. That's fine. Sure, sure. Let's let's all, all of them. <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of my favorite things about this story and how it ended was Ed Woodward resigning, yep. and the line that he spun was because he was so disgusted by the European Super League when he had been a key figure in its creation. <laughs> yeah. So disgusted that it didn't work was what he meant to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there we go. All right, Soccer One Hundred and One done. Thank you very much, Graham Ruthven. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And thank you, listener. We'll be back with another one on the feed very soon. But for now, catch you later.